Welcome to Compliance Beat, the podcast for compliance and ethics professionals. We provide practical insights and answer your questions about compliance and ethics. Together, we'll stay up to date on current trends so that your program stays effective. Brought to you by Moorhead Compliance Consulting. Here's your host, Eric Moorhead. The question this week is, what are the requirements and best practices for written compliance policies? We've already talked about code of conduct a couple of times in this series of podcasts, and certainly code of conduct is the written standard that gets the most attention when you're talking about compliance standards, written standards. This is due in no small part because the Department of Justice and SEC and other regulatory agencies have said over the past few years that they feel that a solid code of conduct is the foundation upon which a program is built. But if you go back to the sentencing guideline standards, you'll find that code of conduct is itself not mentioned at all. What is discussed in Chapter 8 of the sentencing guidelines, in fact, specifically 8B2.1B1, is that an organization shall establish standards and procedures to prevent and detect criminal conduct. So the operative thing here is standards and procedures. The guidelines further define that in the application note as standards of conduct and internal controls that are reasonably capable of reducing the likelihood of criminal conduct. The best practices that have developed over the last couple of decades have, as I said, mostly focused on code of conduct. But the guidelines, and more specifically, what regulators and other stakeholders expect from an organization, have changed pretty rapidly over the past few years. And I think what we're seeing now is the expectation that the other standards, the other written standards, your compliance policies, should change as well. At the heart of the matter here is having written standards that are reasonably capable of explaining the organization's policy on a particular risk topic, the resources that are available, and bottom line, what an employee or other interested stakeholder is supposed to do in a certain circumstance. Ultimately, what I think that means to those of you who are responsible for the written compliance policies is that the same standards that have been applied for best practices code of conduct over the last few years apply here. What you oftentimes see with written standalone compliance policies, let's take, for for instance, a harassment policy is that the level or grade level of language, the complexity of language, is often much higher than the discussion of harassment in a typical code of conduct that's been updated in the last five years, for example. Now, getting simplified language and having a reduced grade level so that everybody in your audience will understand what you're talking about in a is complicated Again, using harassment as an example, because there are terms of art, like protected classes, for example, that raise the grade level of the language of a particular policy. The other thing that I've seen over the last few years, particularly with organizations that have focused on simplification in their code of conduct on particularist topics, is that some of the more complex language, some of the terms of art, or legalese, if you will, has now been migrated or balkanized into the individual policy for that particular risk topic. I think this is a mistake, particularly as more and more organizations cross-reference out to these policies from the code of conduct for more detailed information. If you have a 
policy on a particular topic that applies to virtually everyone, again, using harassment as a easy example, when the grade level is at a grade level 14 or 16 or 17, you have to ask yourself seriously if the population you're trying to reach, your employee population, can reasonably understand what the policy is discussing. To quote the guidelines, is that policy reasonably capable of imparting that knowledge to someone if it's at a grade level 16? Keeping in mind that in the United States, roughly 36% of the population has a bachelor's degree. I'm not going to lie to you. Getting simplification in a standalone policy, particularly something like harassment, is very difficult to do. This is a team effort, a multidisciplinary effort. You need more than lawyers involved. If you have a crack communications team or marketing professionals in your organization that are used to using crisp, simple language to reach a population, employ them and try to get them to help you go through as many drafts as you need to. Try to make the policy shorter. Instead of a eight or 10 page policy on something like harassment, shoot for two or three pages. You can get it in two or three pages. And that includes having examples and Q&As and other learning aids as you would in your code of conduct. Do your best to eliminate technical and overly complicated language. This might mean some pitched battles with the lawyers, both internally and externally. But I think what your duty is as the gatekeeper of this information to a population that may or may not understand the policy as it's currently written is to really challenge on the necessity of certain complex sentences, terms of art. You're not going to win all of those battles, but I think it's worth pushing the internal stakeholders, the internal subject matter experts, about the necessity of certain passages and about repetitive and duplicative sentences and statements and about getting rid of words like duplicative that are not going to be accessible to the audience you're trying to reach. An example here would be instead of saying, we do not harass or intimidate based on a legally protected classification, we do not harass individuals for any reason. Take the direct approach whenever possible. Another cue to take from code of conduct development is using inclusive language. While many organizations have moved away from the rather staid, the company and you language that you would see in codes of conduct maybe 10 or 15 years ago, that language still exists to a great extent in the standalone policies, compliance policies that are out there with many organizations. I would encourage you to use inclusive language in the policies just as you do in the code of conduct. Our company instead of the company. Us and we instead of you and the company. As I said at the start, there are going to be some terms of art that you probably are not going to be able to escape. But I think it's worth your time and effort to do as much carving up of that language as possible. Again, keeping in mind, depending on your employee population and the stakeholders that you're expecting to understand and abide by this policy, that a significant portion of your population may not understand it. And if they can't understand it, then it fails under the most basic premises of the sentencing guideline standards that it be reasonably capable of fulfilling its role. A second thing to consider, again, drawing from our experience over the last few years with changing role of code of conduct, is including some design and learning aid or comprehension aid materials within standalone policies. Now, 
For most organizations, you're not going to spend money and time designing and laying out your individual policies as you would your code of conduct. But Microsoft Word, which is the tool most of us use to put together these written standards these days, has the ability to include some design elements rather simply. You can do text boxes, you can do contrasting fonts, and basic flowcharts and other design elements rather simply. If this computer-phobic lawyer can figure it out, you can too. The great thing about using those tools as they exist in Word is whether you save your policies as Word documents and distribute them that way, or create PDFs, it is rather simple to do. And once you set it up and do it once or twice on a couple of test policies, then it's something that you can replicate rather easy. Just as many more organizations are using Q&As, uh, call-out boxes with definitions, and scenarios that are sort of ripped from the headlines, if you will, as learning aids or comprehension aids within codes of conduct, there's absolutely no reason why you can't use these same elements within a policy. Now, obviously, if you're trying to keep the policy to three to four pages or a couple of pages, you're not going to use multiple learning aids or call-out boxes or definitional boxes. But if you have one or two or three in a couple of pages, it creates some visual interest. It also highlights definitions or particular scenarios that are common that you want to highlight in the same way you would do it in a code of conduct. And I think it's very effective. It imparts the important messaging that you want to get across. And it also allows you to discuss complex topics without getting into the weeds with complex language, as we were talking about a few minutes ago. Using harassment again as a example, one thing you could do is have a call-out box that defines what protected classes are, and then have a bulleted list of some examples of protected classes, rather than having a long sentence buried in a paragraph. A third consideration that I think is important as you're looking at your standalone compliance policies is consistency. The main thing here is developing a template that you can replicate. And that might include some of the visual elements we were just talking about. And that would also include particular sections that are going to be familiar and consistent in every policy. Some elements that you want to make sure that are always there are simple things like, who do you contact if you want more information about this particular topic? Who does this policy apply to? Does it apply to everyone? Policy like harassment probably does, but maybe some other policies don't. And there should be a really clear section that talks about the obligations or requirements for the employees and other stakeholders for whom this policy applies that states out in very clear language what to do or not do. This overall will add comprehension to the policies as a whole because there will be consistency from policy to policy as to where this information is located. And so once an individual employee reads a couple of these policies, they'll know exactly what to look for. Last thing that I would say when you're considering a project to take a look at your standalone policies is to have a project plan. The fact is, is this is a much more difficult process usually than putting together a new code of conduct. Number one, you probably have a lot more stakeholders that you'll have to include. Some of the worst offenders, for example, are IT policies and trying to convince the stakeholders, the subject matter experts, that you need to simplify that language can be a difficult task in and of itself. But I think it's well worth it. And keep in mind the ultimate goal here and what you need to impart to those subject matter experts and stakeholders is that 
if you have a policy that only they understand and perhaps you understand, but 60% or more of the population of your company does not understand, then it is a failure. But having an attack plan, having a list of main offenders, if you will, that need to be attacked first, and doing a few policies as a pilot program so that you can show the effectiveness of it is a good place to start. I think in the future, I'll spend an entire episode talking a little bit more about an attack plan or project plan for this because there's certainly a lot more moving parts involved. But these are some good tips to keep in mind if you're contemplating starting a project to look at your standalone compliance policies. If you have a question you want answered on the podcast, be sure to submit it on compliancebeat.com. Now here's the upshot. The upshot this time is there are some key things to keep in mind when you're planning to update your standalone compliance policies. First, the stakeholders and subject matter experts that you're going to have to consult with are going to be wider and broader than you would with your code of conduct. And it may take a bit of planning to get them all aligned with the goal. And just as with your modern code of conduct, you're going to want to pay attention to the language of your individual policies. Try to reduce jargon and have a conversational tone. Consider design and interactive elements wherever possible and develop a template with a consistent approach as soon as possible. Today, we have three questions with Wesley Bazell. Wes serves as the Assistant General Counsel, External Affairs, and Director of Political Law and Ethics Programs for Altria Client Services, LLC, where he provides in-house legal counsel on matters relating to the political, legislative, and lobbying activities of Altria Group, Inc., its services companies and subsidiaries. Wes provides advice and guidance on political law compliance for more than 75 jurisdictions and also heads a legal team that supports Altria's public policy activities, providing services related to legislative and regulatory drafting and interpretation. He's a member of Altria's compliance leadership team and its anti-corruption compliance working group. He is an authority on political compliance law and co-chair of the conference board's committee on corporate political spending and a faculty member for the Practicing Law Institute's annual corporate political activities conference. He serves on the publications committee and is co-chair of the conference committee for the Council on Governmental Ethics Laws, COGEL, a professional organization of government officials with responsibility or interest in governmental ethics, elections, campaign finance, and lobby laws. A frequent speaker and lecturer, Wes's articles on the topic of political compliance law and lobbying have appeared in Corporate Council and other publications. Previously, he was an attorney at Winston & Strawn's LLP's Federal Government Relations and Regulatory Affairs Practice Group and spent more than six years on Capitol Hill, where he served as an aide to Arkansas Senators David Pryor and Dale Bumpers and handled matters involving the Federal Bureau of Prisons, Social Security Administration, Department of Education, and Department of Labor. Additionally, he has served in the Office of General Counsel and the Privatization and Special Projects Branch of the Federal Bureau of Prisons at the Department of Justice. Wes is extremely active in promoting diversity and inclusion within the legal and corporate communities. He's a member of the Altria Law Department's Diversity Committee and was co-founder and serves on the steering committee for Altria's LGBT Employee Resource Group and is a board member for the National LGBT Bar Foundation. In addition, Wes volunteers as a mentor for Leadership Council on Legal Diversity, Law School Mentoring Program, and was selected as a 2014 LCLD Fellow. He was also a member of the inaugural class of the Stanford Graduate School of Business's LGBTQ Executive Leadership Program. He is a member of the Maryland and the District of Columbia Bars. Welcome, Wes. Thank you. Uh, Wes, can you talk a little bit about your career journey? How did you end up in your current role? Sure. Well, like I think most compliance professionals, it wasn't the career that I had planned for myself coming out of law school. But coming out of law school, I was working at Winston & Strong, a, law, a large law firm in our Washington, D.C. office, 
And we had a client come in one day that needed some political law compliance assistance. And the partners in my group turned to me and said, you can do this, right? And so I did. And it was something that sparked an interest in me. So it married my interest in the law and legal reasoning and sort of parsing statutes and regulations with my interest in politics. I, as you mentioned, had had worked on Capitol Hill for some time and had been sort of around the policy world for a while. It was a very unique opportunity I I found to to marry those two together. It was admittedly a very niche practice area in the legal profession. So we are a, a small but merry band of political compliance lawyers that are out there, but it is something that is always changing. I mean, in what, and that's one of the reasons I, I think it's, it's fun and interesting. About every year, we see 12 or so states that are changing their political compliance laws. And so that means the laws that regulate campaign finance, gifts to government officials, lobbying, any type of interaction with government. And I think your story of uh, being drafted uh, is probably familiar to many people in the compliance profession that, you you know, there's a need out there. And sometimes uh, you you are lucky to be sitting, lucky to be standing in front of the person who has the need. <laughs> exactly, exactly. It was, you know, it was not an area of the law that I was even focused on during law school, it sort of crops up in in my literally in in the first you know three months of my practice at, at Winston and Strawn, and and it was a it was something that I could sort of take on as as my own and develop a, a legal practice out of. And in your now that you have your current role in house uh, overseeing the compliance efforts at, at Altria, if you could go back before you undertook that current role and give your younger self one piece of advice that would have been helpful in that role, what would that one piece of advice be? On my desk, I, I have, and it was given to me by by one of my early bosses, a paperweight that has a quote from from Michael Jordan that says, "Don't be afraid to fail." be afraid not to try. And I I find, you know, I find myself, it sits right in front of my, my computer screen, and I find myself looking at it from time to time. And I think it's a great message for, for those of us in the compliance arena, because the reality of what we do is we are dealing with uh, other human beings, people who have their own will. We're trying, trying to create a structure and a process that funnels compliance in, and identifies risk and deters compliance. But the reality is that there is something that is always going to fall through the crack. It may be a big something, it may be a little something, but there is always going to be a compliance problem within within any company. You know, when I look at that, you know, I'm reminded, and I'm not a, a super big sports fan, but I'm reminded of, of another quote from, from Michael Jordan, who mentioned that he had missed more than 9,000 shots in his career and lost about 300 games. And he says that, you know, 26 times, he was trusted to take the game-winning shot, and he missed. But those failures have also led to his success because he, you know, he kept trying and he and he kept going at it, and he didn't let the past rule the future of him. So I think that is uh, has been driving force with me is that you've got to be willing to try different things, be willing to go out on a limb sometimes, and try a new method of a new process a new system. And, you know, you obviously do your due diligence, but in order to, to be successful, you're going to need to take some risk. And so that's, that's one of the, the lessons. I'll take a liberty and say what the second lesson is that you learn a lot by listening. And that I think is, is extremely true in the compliance world. There's a, another quote by, by Lyndon Bain Johnson 
that says, if you're not listening, you're not learning. And I think that's true from a day-to-day perspective, but as, again, as a compliance professional, what we see and observe and hear is oftentimes much more important to our roles as compliance officers than what we say, because you've got to, you've got to process what is going on around you. You've got to understand the culture of your company both the stated culture of the company and then, you know, the day-to-day culture, which in a perfect world are the same, but sometimes they're not. Mm -hmm. And you have to be able to take those learnings and and those listening skills and then apply them to create the compliance procedures that are necessary to to protect your company. Now, I, I think what you said at the top about this, when you talk about an organization, it's a system of people and and having some perseverance and trying to break through some natural resistance that might occur because you're coming from the compliance department and then listening so that you understand really what's going on. And as you say, divine the culture as best you can. Those are two really good pieces of advice. The last question I have for you today is if you can peer into your compliance and ethics crystal ball just a little bit over the next couple of years, what are a couple of trends that you think are going to be very important for the profession and and for compliance in general? I am a political law compliance attorney and you know so so the world of politics is something that that I pay attention to as well and and certainly within the the presidential election cycle you know we've certainly seen a lot of of WikiLeaks and a lot of hacking of what people had considered to be private emails or private conversations you know I think that is only going to expand you know and occur it all already occurs within the corporate context, but it, I think it is going to expand more vociferously within the corporate context. And you're going to see entities that are out there to release information about mm-hmm. what people may have considered to be their private email communications. It is something that typically now only comes out in investigations and in press releases from the government when they you know, find these treasure troves of, of documents. But I think you're going to see a lot more sort of private actors out there hacking into computer systems and leaking information or just doing massive data dumps where anyone out there can go and, and search and, and find what a company's employees may have mm-hmm. been, been saying back and forth. I think it's it's going to be a shift in thinking for people who had always assumed that there was some privacy surrounding this. And, and mm-hmm. you know, there's always been corporate espionage. There's always been people who have intercepted communications, whether they were oral or written. But I think it's going to be something that is going to create a lot of work for <laughs> um, the compliance professionals. And a lot of worry for everyone. <laughs> yes, exactly. But uh, we, ought, we ought to note uh, for, the, for the listeners, too, that we're recording this on November 7th, 2016. So we're still on the edge of the cliffhanger of the presidential election. So we're, we're speaking uh, about a, an uncertain future in a lot of different respects. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, and one thing that I, that I have always told the, the people that I worked with when I was both in private practice and then now in-house is, especially with, with email communications, you don't know where that, that email is going to end up. Someone can forward it to someone who forwards it to someone who, you know, three forwards later, it lands in the inbox of a, a Wall Street Journal hoarder. Yes. And there's, and so, you know, I think companies have and, and com- corporate employees have this misperception of the fact that whatever they say is, is sacrosanct and, and is, that's not going to be pierced and never going to come to light. Mm-hmm. And, you know, certainly we have seen time and time again like I said, in the past through investigations primarily, where these 
embarrassing emails have come out. And, and you know, I've been on in, in private practice a number of, of corporate investigations where you, they don't, they may not necessarily come out, but there, there are a slew of attorneys going through corporate employees' emails based on a, an internal investigation, some type of allegation. And it ends up that there are repercussions as well for, for those employees, even if that communication did not make it to the light of day, it made it to the people who are monitoring things yeah. as well. So I, th- I think it's going to be, all, we're going to see a lot more focus on the, the risk of electronic communications and whether that creates restraint on the part of corporate employees is still a question out there, I think, but my guess is it probably won't. But um, so <laughs> well, it will, it will work to, to the advantage of those of us who you know, make our, our livelihoods based on, on, on creating these compliance systems. Well, you know, maybe, maybe, you know, we might look back on the 2016 presidential election as the, 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 the final aha moment for a lot of people about being more circumspect about their private communications because it became such a story. But you're right. I mean, anybody who's been involved in internal investigations over the last 15 or 20 years knows that, you know, the emails make the, make and break those cases. And now perhaps we'll see an impact on a greater scale on how people treat electronic communications and maybe also business records uh, protocols and and policies as well. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I I think it it will certainly, you know, at least for the next few weeks, if not months, be at least (laughs) more on top of mind of of employees as they're are getting ready to hit send in their corporate email systems. Until the, until the next uh, scandal that uh, erupts either from a President Clinton or a President Trump, we don't know <laughs> as we're sitting here today, which it will be. Uh, but no, but no I, I think that those are those are very prescient and, and topical issues that, that uh, compliance officers are dealing with at this time. Well, Wes, I, I can't thank you enough for uh, giving us just a few minutes of your time today to, to talk about uh, your journey and uh, uh, this interesting sort of subgenre, if you will, of compliance compliance, but, but one that is, uh, I think, top of mind for a lot of people, not just during this season, but whenever these issues come up. So thank you again. Well, thank you. I'm honored to be included. Thanks for listening to Compliance Beat. Check out our website, compliancebeat.com. This podcast is brought to you by Moorhead Compliance Consulting. Be sure to check us out at moorheadconsulting.com.